Don't, don't say anything that Slim might find offensive now. That is right. Such as? <laughs> any, <laughs> any, anything, basically. <laughs> oh, that was good troll, good troll. I, ge- I generally find everything offensive. Well, welcome, Martin. Thanks for joining us uh, tonight. I look forward to hearing and chatting with you. We've also oh. got Kevin and Kenneth on the line. Hello. Uh, uh, Martin, if you want to just kick us off with a little bit of an intro, the background for people who don't know you, uh, over uh, to you. I always feel like performance pressure when I have to introduce myself. Um, yeah, the spotlight's so, on. You're on the stage. Yes, and it's hectic. Um, <laughs> my name is Martin. Um, I've, I've been programming for a while, professionally for about 20 years, or, or no, professionally for about 16 years, non-professionally for about another four years or so. I actually realized the other day that JavaScript is the language I've been coding the longest, which is a bit crazy. But anyways, um, the last, last five or six years, I've been working a lot with software dev teams to help them just get better at, at software development while still trying to build stuff. That's me. Okay, that's pretty cool. Technical issue, yeah. Um, awesome. Um, and I think uh, Kevin and Kenneth have a whole bunch of questions for you tonight. I'll okay, let Ke- I'm looking forward to it. I'll let Kevin set the stage first. All right, so the topic for discussion tonight is code retreats. So, Martin, how long have you been involved with code retreats? I remember being at one that in reality ran probably a couple of years ago now. But what got you involved in that? Um, yeah, I was actually thinking about that. Like, um, I think driven driven software as locally has been as, as sort of like started getting everything's going, getting everything going. Um, I think Corey Haynes was was in South Africa. A couple of years back, and I attended my first code retreat. I think was with um, Kevin and Lynn were there. I can't remember if Kenneth were there. Um, and uh, I guess ever since then, uh, it was quite fun, and um, we ended up facilitating uh, a couple of ones for like companies internally and then in public as well. And I think we helped driven software with um, one of the legacy code retreats um, which you attended, uh, Kevin. Yeah, I remember you and I paid on that. Um, during the legacy code retreats in that first session. Yeah, that was actually huge fun. Um, that was brilliant. So just for the listeners who don't know what code retreats all about, could you give us an introduction of to what, what, it, what code retreats is, what it's about, the format, anything along those lines? Okay, so the whole idea is um, for people of, of sort of like any level to, to attend, to sort of like put, put their time aside, so it's usually like on a Saturday. Um, and then to attend um, a coding session with a whole bunch of other developers. And the whole idea is for, for each person, irrespective of their level, to sort of like take a step forward. So um, if you're sort of like, you feel like you're quite junior or you feel like you've been coding for 20 years, I think anyone can walk to, into a code retreat and, and learn. And it's usually very much sort of like focused around um, sort of like software craftsmanship ethos. Um, you know, there's there's a big sort of like undercurrent of four rules of simple design and test and development and obviously pair programming. Um, and then yeah, throughout the day you sort of like sit in five to six coding sessions, each of about forty five minutes, and you delete the code. 
um, that you've done in each session, and then you sort of like start again by trying to solve the problem. So it's like that whole intentional learning idea. Well, what I enjoy about the code retreat is uh, a couple of things. One is just working with a whole bunch of strange people you might never have the chance to sit next to. And the second thing is you can try completely crazy things because you're going to delete the code. Like, so one of the rules in the code retreat is after your little half an hour session or something, you just throw the code away. Yeah, no, I, re I really like that because it's sort of like, it's actually changed, that little part has changed the way I code irrespective. You know, it made me a lot less attached to code, even professionally. Um, it, it, and more, more sort of like attached to the, to the, the problem that, that you're solving. Yeah, exactly. You can just you can try something out very quickly. It, it gives you that kind of um, confidence to try something and then throw it away. Yes, and Git reset becomes your friend. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, actually, like I like the idea of like completely deleting it. It's gone. <laughs> this is even pre-Git commit, <laughs> or, or even pre-Git, I guess. <laughs> yeah, pre-Git in it, I guess. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean that's very important with uh, with the code retreats is that you that you don't. Um, that you don't actually commit the code and try and get rid of it and, and sort of like unload that 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 cognitive effort that you've that, that you've put in so that you can try something out new out next time. And you know what happens a lot is like I think the one time I paired with with Kevin on Ruby, um, I'm not a professional Ruby developer and I learned a lot about Ruby and um, I don't know what Kevin took away from it, but it was just generally a good good fun experience. I find with the whole thing of deleting your code after 45 minutes, since I started doing code retreat, I went to that first one that Corey Haynes did at Ruby Fuser in 2012. But since then, I've just been Git resetting far more often. Uh, I, I might Git reset hard three, four, perhaps five times a day, just taking little stabs at something, saying, okay, no, this did work or this didn't work. Let's now do this doing test-driven development or something like that again. Yeah, I think it, 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 it started to treat your, your, your sort of like IDE as a scratch pad, um, helps, helps you think about the problem a lot better. You know, and you don't end up putting that exploration into the code, code base. You don't end up pushing that to the, to the, to the trunk, you know, you just reset and start solving the problem and move on. Don't you think what, one of the difficulties here is we're trying to define something that's essentially very organic? You know, we're trying to like put maths onto water or something. Really hard. Do you understand what I'm saying? So you're talking about, about the act of, of programming? Yeah, sure. And I mean, even like the code retreat, which I think touches on something very central, is this idea that, you know, you're kind of throwing something against the wall to see if it sticks. What Kevin was just saying about you know, doing a git reset, what he's saying is he, he let a piece of code come out, uh, sort of escape as the Klingon programming code says, uh, the code escaped, but it didn't make sense. So he threw it away. And now he's going to try again. But that first little bit helped him understand something organically. And now he's going to try again with something else. And eventually at three o'clock in the afternoon, he says, whoa, like I've actually got an idea here. This is this might work. I love the way you, you, you phrase that. And for me, that's very similar to, to how artists um, work when they, when they create a piece of, piece of art. They um, sort of like explore um, different ideas um, in different media, and then they, they take it to the final medium and um, 
sort of like start creating that, that piece of art. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, there's that, that paper, well, not that paper, but that blog post by, by Paul Graham, where he talks about hackers and painters. And, and um, I much prefer the, the analogy of, of us being, as programmers, being painters as opposed to being engineers or scientists or something like that. You touched on one thing there about the musicians when creating music, it's the expression of art. But one of the key points in Code Retreat is that just as musicians will practice off stage and rehearse and improve their craft before they on stage to perform, Code Retreat gives programmers, developers, whichever term you want to use there, uh, a platform or a a grounds where they can practice without the you know the pressures of deadlines and general production environment stuff where we know that we've got code that's going to be thrown away we can take a stab and entertain an idea um, so that when we do have to perform as with the musicians analogy mm. we're well rehearsed and you know it's a well well-oiled machine that we can get get the code out that will actually do the job yeah i i agree and and just practice more and more practice it's great i really like that and 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 it sort of like touches on the 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 whole intentional learning sort of like mindset you know whether it's a code retreat or a code dojo or, or just doing a code kata on your own um I, I like the idea of of taking a problem um and solving it over and over and over and over again until to the point where the problem that you're solving isn't the thing that's causing cognitive load, but the way you're going about and solving the problem is what's causing cognitive load. So you think a lot more about how you're solving the problem than what you're thinking about the problem. And I really like that about Kata's. It's just keep on repeating until the problem is actually not um, in front of you anymore. Yeah, it gives you a kind of baseline where you can start experimenting almost a kind of a playground you can start experimenting with different ideas whether it's a different language a different framework a different design pattern the problem isn't actually the problem anymore it's now it, it frees your mind to think about uh, the details so <clears throat> i want to add like as somebody who's only done two code retreats I think for for me, one of the key things from the second one that I did is I spent some time with Kevin actually getting to grips with Conway's Game of Life itself. I think the first time I was so completely lost that I had quite a rough rough battle that day uh, to the point of actually recommended to people just make sure at least you've got like some idea of what it is, not maybe be able to code a full solution, but at least understand the tools. But for me, it was... At the end of the first, I was completely flat and exhausted. My mind was stretched in so many ways, but I still didn't understand the domain. I don't know if you guys think that's an important thing to let people know beforehand so that the actual learnings, and I think the second time it, it really manifested for me what we're supposed to learn that day. It's actually nothing to do with Conway. It's all about this, the communication techniques and the, what our tools allow us to do and different leaning on the strengths of different languages and and all that. I don't know if if you guys feel the same that that you'll get more out of the day if you've done Game of Life before, or at least understand the domain. I agree completely. 
I think this ties into the, some earlier comments about, you know, uh, I think what Martin was saying, and this is this is perhaps where we diverge. Martin is, I I feel very strongly that having a solid engineering slash math and a foundation is super important. You know, the art and the craft is also great. But to your point, Ken, like if you if you know what the theory of the game of life is, and you just spend like a little bit of time with that, it makes going into the programming sessions so much more beneficial because you know what you're trying to do. Um, you know, and Kevin can chime in with, with music analogies, but if you don't have any music theory, it, it's very hard to progress in music. Once you learn about chord structures and how to count, you know, what musical timing is like, all of a sudden this entire world of music grows bigger. I, uh, having played a bit of guitar myself, I, I, I like the, the, the sort of like trying to draw the analog to um, our musician would practice scales, um, and, and now that sort of relates to Kratos, but also practicing other people's pieces, you know. I spend a lot of time um, practicing other people's pieces and, and learning from that. So, um, sure, sure. Yeah, and then, and then would, also would, understanding, like, you know, where that composer is coming from in terms of the musical theory. Yeah, I think it was, I, I can't remember who said it, um, so I'm scared of misattributing Uncle Bob, but, but I think he said that um, for some reason, um, software development, we, we don't have like a body of knowledge, like how authors or musicians or painters or other fields, even architects have like a body of knowledge where they can go back and look at how other people did the work and learn from that. And um, the only thing we really have is, is, is got us, I guess, an open source. Uh, that's, that's what we have to do. I, I completely disagree with the button. We've got a massive body of work. It's stretching back 50 years now. Nobody looks at it because it's kind of uncool. It, it's written well, in C, you know, and it's a it's a the code to an operating system called Unix. So, is are you saying that that Unix is our body of knowledge, and that we should gleam all software engineering knowledge from the Unix code? Base? No, no, no. Um, I'm, I'm saying just, there's a there's a there's a lot of history. There's a lot of there's a lot I of great guys. There's that. a lot of code. There's a lot of examples. So, you know, just to your point. I, I, I think yeah. I think we've where we are diverging there is yes we've got a lot of knowledge from the last fifty odd years in in Unix in open source code but it doesn't compare with the staggering amount of knowledge from the last five hundred fifteen hundred plus years in say structural engineering and maybe accessibility is also an issue so there's some brilliant thesis like another doctoral work but it's so tremendously boring to go and read unless you have to cite it for your own work and then just trying to dig through source code looking for a lesson i think it's extremely difficult like you start losing some context without revision like vision control tools that you can grasp the history and stuff it's tricky i think github might well in fact actually open that up to a whole new level looking at a line of code to get back to an issue to get to the next commit to get like around the discussion that can be deeply useful for like body of knowledge style work. But I, I think I I agree with both of you. Mm. Like Lynn, you're spot on. There's so much out there, mm. but the accessibility and the ease of consumption is definitely a pain. So it just it becomes something we don't do. Well, well the, like the, there's no motivation. Let, let's ask Martin these questions because we got him here and he's got a lot more experience with this stuff than we do. Uh, Martin, how do you find, you know, you've been out to groups of people, you've taken them through a code retreat. We're possibly just reflecting one kind of outcome. 
how's it been? Like, how have people accepted COVID retreats? And, you know, what, what sort of changes have you seen out there with, with groups of people you've taken through this process? Um, sure, that's, that's quite a broad, broad question. Glenn, I, 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 just on the previous one, I think I do agree with you on, on the body of knowledge. And, and if you look at Kitab, that, that's great, especially, you know, when I started putting a lot of node, um, like having a look at the, the express source code taught me how to write good code in node, you know, and, and I use that as a basis to, to build apps on. But, but to your question, um, it's, I think it's a broad question. I think code retreats are super effective for, um, uh, 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 but there's sort of like a, a, a expiry date, I think, on them. I think a person, or I, I experience that people have sort of like, they go to a code retreat maybe three, four, some two people, five times. And then it's sort of like, from my experience at least, sort of like plateaus off. Um, so we've been trying to look for, for a different way of, of sorry, like, trying to take that learning a bit a bit further. But in terms of, of the code retreat and, and being effective for people to, to just take those small little steps forward, I think it's super effective. I think taking um, Conway's Game of Life as a basis and, and just solving it with people does definitely improve people's skills. Um, it's, it is sort of like a, if you take the unconference um, um, ethos about, you know, whoever is there is the right people, I think that's one thing that we've seen running code retreats for companies sort of like privately versus running it publicly is the people that end up going to a public code retreat are probably going to be a lot more open to learning. You know, they're taking time off over the weekends to be there, whereas people in companies, they're just doing it because they, their company's running this code retreat. So we've seen that, that in, in public code retreats, people learn a hell of a lot more than doing it privately within companies. I love the energy coming out of it and just that sort of collaborative buzz. That's so cool. But now you've got you're saying you've got a new thing. You've been looking for new ways to kind of inspire and teach people, right? Yeah, we, you know, we started doing um, my programming um, uh, after I got introduced to it um, when we went to Agile in in Washington, D.C. And... um, we started doing it with with teams, and and we started doing that as code dojos. Actually, sort of like mob programming um, comes from code dojos. So, so you, yeah, you're going to have to slow down there because you, you say mob, mob programming. <laughs> like it's just this mad kind of rush. There's one computer, there's a fight. I don't, I don't understand. Yeah, basically, pitchforks yeah, yeah, yeah. and, and <laughs> burning stakes. <laughs> People playing the like it's going to be in pearl. <laughs> no, it's going to be in like it's just going to get crazy, right? <laughs> Perhaps just um, as an introduction, can you give us a definition of what mob programming is as a segue into that? Sure. It's it's basically um, you, you take the whole concept of, of sort of like seven plus minus two people that sort of like Scrum talks about. Um, that's sort of like the ideal team size. And basically say that team, sort of like including the product owner or whichever analysts that you have and the developers, sort of like program against around one computer so you do pair programming but with like nine people. people in one computer yeah i found that nine is probably pushing it a bit and, and how many trips to the hospital have there been <laughs> not that many um it's it's quite important for someone to facilitate it initially and then sort of like each person uh spends anything between five to to about 10 minutes in front of the keyboard um and he's, he's sort of like the driver, and the whole premise is that no idea um, 
can go through your hands without it going through someone else's head first. So you can't just sit there in front of a keyboard and then just type away. You need to speak to people around you about about the ideas that you have about the code. And but but who's logged at a, into at a long Slack? Conversation, no, no. <laughs> who's logged into Slack? I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> Out of the nine people who's well, doing the social stuff, you know, just uh, just being facetious. <laughs> <you know. laughs> um, well, that's part of the idea is that that people focus a bit more, um, and if they need to to go away and and just like look at funny animals, kittens, or something on on Reddit, then if they need that time away, they should take the take the time, I guess. Um, and the, the whole benefit about mob programming is that it's about being effective at the cost of efficiency. Um, so it's sort of like you avoid technical debt from ever originating. And a nice way of looking at it is like I've looked at a lot of code before in my life and I would look at it and it's like WTF and I would annotate it and I would say I would, I've written that code. You know, it's, it's sort of like um, tries to avoid that WTF situation from occurring. You know, I always tell developers there's no such a thing as good code um, because anyone else can look at it and find something wrong with it. So it's just making sure that whatever code you produce is of a much higher quality. And it comes obviously at the cost of, of, of efficiency. Isn't there, I've heard a story of um, a mob programming that took place where you had a feature that, were, that had been going back and forth for about three to four weeks um, with no resolve. And the idea was, let's just get everyone around the computer and by the end of the day, whatever we've got, this, we want to try and get this to production. And by the end of one day, they had solved um, a programming problem, a programming task that had taken three weeks of time before that to no resolve. Yeah, it's, a, it's an amazing tool. Um, I have to say, like some of the, I've seen teams um, where they've tried it and the experiment failed. And, and we're, we're at the moment, like this morning, actually, we were trying to figure out why it wasn't working in that environment. Um, so it is by no means a silver bullet, but it definitely, there's definitely merit in it. Um, a nice thing is that it came, came from this whole premise of, of code dojos where people would sit in a room and do a code carter together and then talk to each other about, you know, um, four rules of simple design or solid or, or whatever. And as a, as a group learn, um, the subject matter at hand, whether that's a new programming language or coding practice or coding techniques. Um, so we've been using that um, code dojo mob programming sort of like thing super effectively with, with teams. And, um, you know, even um, as, a, as a company, when we do our team days, we've been using mob programming to learn new languages. So in seven hours last week, I learned Swift. But at least I feel that I can actually build an app now on Swift within a seven hour period. Um, so it's, it's super effective. Wow. I suppose yeah, you, also, you also kill a lot of the bottlenecks there because when you're doing mob programming, you only really need one person who knows the programming language, right? And we had none. Okay, so how did you then get from zero lines of code to a working Swift app through, uh, well, perhaps not a working Swift app, but at least some decent Swift code out with no experience in the language before? And perhaps you can just talk us through your experience there. So it was cool because I okay, obviously the, the Swift programming, how to learn Swift in a nutshell type of docs out there are really, really good. But what was cool about the session is 
that we had nine guys in the room or sorry, seven guys in the room and someone would like we would do one of the sort of like first step in the book and then we would say well you know in in .NET it does it like this and in elixir it does it like this and in ruby it does it like this and let's try and experiment with swift and then everyone would pipe in and, and give their perspective and everyone would sort of like jump in and try different things and just by people trying different things and coming from different paradigms they we explored the sort of like surface area of the language much quicker if that makes sense that does make a lot of sense but i want to almost ask what kind of personality do you need for this mob programming i mean if you've got a a bunch of really like a few very opinionated strong personalities in there how like you know introverts extroverts all that kind of stuff what do you think yeah, I don't really know how to put that, but I mean, is have you seen like a real personality conflict, or do you think people like adjust to each other fairly quickly, and there's not this one person that gets drowned out completely, and they walk away like disgusted from the whole exercise? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> so, two answers to your question. Um, so. First is, is sort of like the prefect. No, I'm just kidding. I hate words like that. But the first is sort of like the, the, the person, it, it's referred to as holding the space. So it's similar to the coach in an, in an agile team. It's sort of like a fairly senior developer or a very experienced developer. It just helps the team be cohesive. So the person holding the space actually never takes the keyboard and is only there to ask questions. Um, so that's critically important. And, and Kevin, the example that you used quite earlier, um, I know that that specific case study, and I also know the guy that held the space there, and he's really, really good at helping holding the space. And that's probably why they were so successful um, in that instance. Um, and we suspect that the one team that failed is because there wasn't someone holding the space. Then that person just makes sure that sort of like all the egos are tempered and people don't start fighting about minutia, about, you know, we structured if Swift parentheses and the other guys want to use, excuse me, curly braces like this. And, another way and stuff like that so the person holding the space is, is part of that so um but and that's the first part of okay. the oh sorry okay so the the second part of the answer is that what it's really really effective to 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 achieve is whatever the weaknesses are of the team whether that's learning um in terms of tooling or language or SDK or whether it is understanding about the problem that's being solved um, or ability to communicate with your peers, those things become super accentuated when you do more programming. And, and that's where the sort of like effectiveness comes in because like the, it, 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 it's sort of like a small little um, thing that suddenly becomes super accentuated and then everyone jumps in to help the person grow in that space, whether it is a personality quirk understanding the problem or gaining technical skills so you need to almost have like they say a bunch of agreements around the people that it will be a safe space somebody will be protecting them from themselves and each other and then you, you can just set the stage right and then it goes that's the intention yes absolutely um i've never seen it become aggressive like i, I was in in one session about two weeks back and like I, I literally ground my teeth because the developer would copy by pressing file, like edit, copy, 
and then edit based like on the menu and like everyone was like grinding their teeth it's like how can a developer do this but people just patiently said you know there's a command button and say command copy command v you know and, and it will do magic for you and people were super friendly with him and he learned that's fantastic that's really great yeah i think that's the missing piece if you just see mob programming the first time i think it looks intimidating yes i think as intimidating as, as a code retreat may seem to someone i mean i was very intimidated my first time but i went uh so like you know maybe i don't know tdd and maybe people will now see that i don't know tdd and it, it was very intimidating and, and it ended up being an amazing experience yeah, so much of that has to do with just setting up that safe space where people can ask questions and are free to explore and learn. Um, I mean, as much as we may speak about practicing off stage in the musical analogy, a lot of the time we are kind of learning on the job as, you know, as we're exploring new technology, new languages, whatever it may be. Um, and I suppose with the mob programming here, if you've got a safe environment where you've got people with experience who you can learn from um, your skills transfer must just multiply there it, it does but it also becomes more focused um so like a code retreat you don't know what you're going to get it's sort of like a lucky packet um hmm. like kevin i think i got it with you and you showed me team maxinator which was one of the coolest things i've ever seen and um at the time, I coded with Gabriel Fortuna and he showed me Z-Shell. And I never expected to learn those tools. Um, and I don't think you, in a mob scenario or a code dojo, you will be that open to seeing new things, um, if that makes sense. Because it will be like whoever's machine is you're using, that's the machine you're using. On, on that, actually, I want to add, I saw this with the last one. I think we forget this. We all have our super-tuned Space Max, Vim, uh, plain Emacs setups. I think for the code retreat, it's especially important to have something very, very neutral like Atom or Sublime Text installed. Uh, we tried to do a few examples, and then I think the last thing you want is somebody being stuck in Vim mode and not knowing how to get, like, how to quit. So, yeah, it, it, as you said, that like you see amazing tools, but I think some tools can also hamper people, like, get very much in their way. Yeah, I totally agree. I totally agree. So yeah, anyways, the, the, the idea that we're experimenting with, um, and we're sort of like doing it alongside the guys from Driven is with the global data of code retreat, we're going to run a code retreat with more programming. So instead of running six programming sessions, we're going to run either two or three and we'll, we'll take a bit more of a meaty kata, like the supermarket pricing, the one where you do the checkout and, and actually, do focus a lot more like on emergent design and getting into like meaty conversation topics around sort of like four rules of simple design and stuff like that as opposed to you know this is tdd or you know this is clean code and would we be able to switch between them like would we be able to do a normal like say two sessions of code retreat and then a session of mob, mob programming and then two sessions of code retreat again was it a we commit to the one or the other. Uh, I actually don't really think about <laughs> that. Um, now that I think about that, you'll probably, it's just, it's a timing thing. So you just need to make sure that you get out of one into the other 
in in time to not like get into a session halfway. So yeah, I think it. I don't think it would be a problem. Yeah, at Ruby Decamp, we had a bit of a mob programming session going just in parallel to some discussion sessions that we were having, and people could go in and out pretty much as they pleased. I think they were just doing something simple like fizzbuzz to start with, but the the concept there was people could go in, people could go out, um, and as long as there was someone at the keyboard and someone who's who could run the idea through, the mob could keep going. I, that is quite an important sort of attribute of of mobs is that people can leave and go, um, as long as like not everyone leaves. Um, we're we're in this coach circle with um, Woody um, and and Llewellyn. We sort of like veneered it. And we were joking about trying to set up a mob that runs 24-7 for like a week um, across the globe and just have developers working on this sort of like repo and just see if we can actually do that with like Google Hangouts or something. It would be super fun. Interesting <laughs> experiment. I think it would be fun. Imagine like 24-7 coding and you like you wake up, you join the mob, you see where they are, you see what tests are running, and then you sort of like go on. <laughs> That's if it's even the same program when you wake up again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, by same the same language. Yeah, by the time we've woken up, they've just restarted it in closure because someone else got to the keyboard who didn't know Ruby, just something like that. Yeah, and it went from from Emacs to Vim and from Vim to Emacs. Yeah, and every time that like San Franciscans get a hold of it, it pivots. <laughs> <laughs> no, yes, they, no, they from, start a new microservice. Oh yes, from the first carta to the second carta and so forth. <laughs> so that was a bad stereotype. <laughs> Uh, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. I, I, anyway, so I think you know, um, I, you know, Kevin, Kevin from from Driven always says a lot. You know, he, he's he's learning a lot about how work works, and I, I'm learning a lot about how learning works at the moment. So, uh, um, and I think that I've, I'm just amazed with with how code cartas and code retreats and and code dojos and mob programming and all of these these practices just sort of like works amazingly um, you know where, where did you hear that you can learn a programming language in seven hours you know it's just crazy yeah it will make for shorter book sales in 21 days <laughs> you know the funny thing is we you, we were we also experimenting with with elixir um and and just the group that we were with said they don't really want to learn Elixir, so we did swift and we're working through the the elixir book so the dave thomas elixir book is is what we're working with through and it's funny because like in in seven well it was eight hours that day but in eight hours we worked through about forty percent of the book. Yeah, that's quick. It's insanely. Quick. That's also encouraging yeah. if you, somebody else wants to pick it up. I think so. Yeah, it's, it's, it's that whole thing of just keeping focused, right? So I want to ask: in this mob programming or the code retreat format, how conducive is that for, say, learning stuff like the the for uh, for rules of simple design, that Corey Haynes, Kent Beck style stuff, or is it more the kind of environment that just like preps the soil and plants the seeds kind of thing, and it still needs some nurturing afterwards? Um, so this is my opinion, mm. um, and and based on on my experiences, and I, I, people, other people may have different experiences, and by all means, tweet at me um, if you feel that you disagree. Um, 
But I actually don't think that that um, Code Retreat is a very good format for learning software design principles. Um, it's it's very good for techniques like pair programming or testing development, but I think it it falls short when you start getting into four rules of simple design or solid or, or stuff like that. And it's it's just because I've seen I'm much more effective code dojos using more, more programming are in in helping people adopt those. I must say, I think that's my gut feel from it as well. Exactly the same. I just, yeah, I was just wondering if it's a also a chance to, but I guess you can tell people like adopt this testing style that you're learning. Hopefully, they're learning about the testing style and then use that as a harness to go and sculpt your code into something more beautiful when you're back at home or back at the office. Can I just jump in there? I think. I think one of the things is when you come out of these code retreats and these dojos and things is programmers are more confident. I mean, you, I don't know if you agree with me there, Martin, but Definitely. yeah. Now, now the question I've got for for Martin and I guess for the other guys is why do you think that people are so like kind of scared, really? Like why why do we have where are we going through this process of trying to get people more confident? Um. I can say why well, I'm scared, or was, or am still, and that's just—it's that that imposter syndrome thing, um, which is like you feel that. Well, the first code retreat I went to was was hugely taxing for me because I, I felt that you know I've been doing TDD, I, I don't feel super confident with it, and now you're going to all these people and and they're going to judge you. Uh, it, it obviously doesn't it ends up doesn't be the, being the case because like everyone feels like that to some extent and everyone just wants to learn. So, um, Lynn, I, I think it's just important to 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 tell people that it's it's a safe space, you know, and it's for developers to to learn from one another. I don't, I don't know, short of that, what what else a person can do. Hmm. Yeah, I'm I'm just curious because we you know it seems like a lot of the time we spend dealing with issues around the machines, not the machines themselves. You know, like, you know, you guys are talking about design principles and so forth. And that's the interesting stuff, not, well, to me, not the safe space stuff. But I understand there's a need for it. You know, I've come to understand that humans need that kind of thing. Um, so so um, <laughs> it's, it's interesting, like, um, Llewellyn um, Falco, who worked with Woody on on the original team that did more programming, he, he sort of said something interesting. He said, like, you know, when Eclipse prompts you to say, you know, is it okay if we anonymously collect your usage of this IDE when you use it? And most people say yes, obviously. So they took that data and, and looked at how much time people spend writing code versus reading code in, in front of the, when they're in front of the computer. Now that's just time in front of the computer. And they found that people spend less than 10% of the time in front of the computer actually writing code and the majority of the time looking at code, which, which says a lot about the dynamic of programming. Very little of what we do is actually programming and most of what we do is thinking. And if we can do that with other people, we'll probably do better at, at, at software development. Well, your, your case study is from Eclipse, so it's Java project. So most of the time people are staring at the code base going, WTF is going on here. Where on earth do I put my code? 
So then I think I like you a lot more suddenly. <laughs> because I probably see yeah. factory and the factory of factories and the factory of factory of factories. And don't even get proxy. me started on, 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 don't get me started on JavaScript, Martin. Like, you know, like it's, it's way worse. It's way worse. <laughs> so yeah, I think Eclipse does have its challenges. But even if, if, if other languages are twice as readable, that still means that, that a majority, a large part of our time is spent reading code and uh, the very small time is actually writing code. Makes sense to me. I agree. Uh, sorry, Java guys. I always, always when I do it, do like a course or something, I rip off Java guys, but it's just so easy. Hmm. Well, they're the most popular language in the world, so it's very easy. You know, just on a side, you know that, that, that Tiob index, I hate that thing because it also talks about one of the, the vertices that they sort of like do their measurements on is the amount of Google searches. So, which means the more difficult or obscure language is, the higher it will feature on that list. And I believe that's why C++ and C and Java are so high up on those lists. No, there's just a lot of them, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> and, yes. and, you know, unfortunately for you, like, there's just a lot of Java and C out in the world. Absolutely. I love C. Hmm. So, where were we? Um, well, it was just about, about confidence, really. I'm, I'm just curious. Because it seems yeah. to me, if you really want to get into design and the engineering, there, there's some big ideas that are going to take you two years to learn. You're never going to learn them in a day. You know, but just it's on gonna... the imposter syndrome side, though, the one thing that I realized I was doing a few years ago was co comparing my knowledge to the entire collective knowledge base of StackOverflow.com, and <laughs> that therefore meant that I felt, you know. That that's the definition of imposter syndrome right there. But you you, you didn't rank. <laughs> I, I don't think I wasn't even qualified to ask a question, let alone you know. So yeah, it's going to take a couple of years to you know nail down those design concepts. But in terms of learning the design, I want to just go back to that point of learning design principles and four laws of simple design through code retreat. I don't think you're going to learn that on your first code retreat. You're not going to learn this on your first five, but I can definitely point to places in my code where I've realized things about design after code retreat number eight, nine, ten that have impacted my decisions in my in my day-to-day -day coding. Whether okay. it be design principles or just ways of thinking about it. What one thing Kenneth you saw in our session at DCAMP was mm. around using sets and structs together. And the interaction between them was something that only came to me after I'd been doing it a few times. That was a very clean solution. That was very insightful. Just to add, was that still on um, Conway's kind yes. of luck? Yes. But I think there, for that specific exercise, I told Kevin, like, get me ramped up on the domain. Like, we're now in the same language, we're in the same tools. We've like got, you know, we're exactly on the same page. And I just turned around and I said, like, help me understand this domain so I can crack it. And he did it and I got it. And I was like, okay, wow, that's great. And then the next two sessions, I could actually be way more useful to my peers because now I had a proper framework to work from or like a known solution. And it was, it was such a good leg up. And that's kind of what seeded the earlier question where I said, like, I think people should know that having some knowledge of the domain is really going to give them a leg up on the day because then they only have one thing to deal with, overcoming this imposter syndrome, like sitting with strangers, 
talking and, and diff facing different personalities, seeing new languages, all that jazz. Body odors. Yes, <laughs> unfortunately. Hmm. Yeah, I, you know, and we barely touched on, on legacy code retreats, and I've, I've personally found that, that I learned the most from, from, from those legacy code retreats as well, because then, then sort of like referrals of, of simple design really surfaces for me as well. Um, and much more than, than in, in, um, uh, the, the Conway's game of life one, because there's actually bad code that you're, that you're working with. So there's examples of not doing it right and you can work to work, make them work. And, and, and I mean, I haven't been to one of those legacy ones and I'm really keen now to actually do it. But probably opens up a whole new level of, of testing challenges. Suddenly you have to like, I, I'm speculating, but like black box testing to get a grip around this foreign piece. And like, I've, like I mean, that suddenly excites me. We're kind of doing that same thing at work now, retrofitting tests on an old big system. And I must say, it's an interesting challenge. Um, okay, okay. The one thing that, that I can say on that, just for, 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 for you guys and for, for, for people listening, is that if you search a legacy code retreat, um, the quarter that comes up is the JB Rensburger trivia game. Um, Kevin, you and I did that one. Yeah. And recently I started doing the Gilded Rose one, which is way, way, way better at, at, um, as an example for um, refactoring. So if ever you do one, it's the Emily Bach one, Emily Bach's um, Gilded Rose one. That's, that's proper good. Uh, impressive. Yeah, Mark Bill showed that one off also as a good example at the last developer, Eugene, in Bryanston. Uh, I'm, oh. yeah, so I'm adding out of it. There's a Ruby port. Um, yeah, it seems to have been ported to a few languages. So that's cool. So do you also have a favor if you, I, I, I don't know if you still attend Code and Coffee, um, but just maybe try and do that with, with some of the guys as a, as a fun exercise because it, it's, it's mind boggling okay. good. Yeah, I'll do that Thursday. Fantastic. Quick <laughs> <laughs> plug um, for Code and Coffee right there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, curtain coffee. So th th that's interesting. But like Kevin, you said something earlier about this imposter syndrome and you know the collective body of of, of Stack Overflow and you know I thought about that. And I and, and I'm I'm on a mission to to reread a whole bunch of books that I've read previously, um, like the refactoring book. And then I feel I I didn't give them enough attention when I went through them the first time. And I, I told Jacques. Um, and a friend of mine last week, it's like, I've been programming for 16 years um, professionally and about 20 years non-professionally. I feel that I'm starting to understand the basics of program. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I guess, I don't know what to well, say about that. Well, that means it's hope for us. <laughs> <laughs> and, and maybe insight, maybe, I don't know. No, I, I have to come out on the side of pessimism there, guys. There's no end in sight. <laughs> <laughs> it's, okay. it's still... Uh, Lynn, you're just going to have to teach us Lisp. That's I was all. just going to say, maybe, Lynn, you've, you've, uh, come, you've understood it properly, and that's where that statement comes from. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I felt, I felt once that I took a big step in the right direction, and I really couldn't understand why I was so alone. <laughs> <laughs> it's that left hand and albuquerque. Yeah, exactly. I was in the mountains, buddy. There was a monk. He said, "Go." He said, "Go home." Go home. I don't. I don't understand it yet. <laughs> was he some master foo of Lisp or something? 
Uh, I, I, the memory is fuzzy. The memory is fuzzy. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the, I've, I've been on a mission to learn functional programming and read about 40% through that book. And, and like a coin fell about a week ago, two weeks ago, about how functional programming works. And it, the moment that coin falls, it breaks your brain completely. Mm, which which <laughs> coin is that? That that all sort of like um, language elements in object-oriented languages are actually functions. Okay. Cool. Yep. <laughs> yeah, objects are just namespaces with functions in them. Yes, and so are if statements. Mm, yes. Let's <laughs> 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 like a small talk on this now. You lost me there. <laughs> okay, so we've been going for about 45 minutes now. Mm. Shall we start heading into some picks? Then I don't know, you want to kick us off on that? Um, picks for this week. Um, just support local music, guys. Get out there, go to Facebook, find a band you like, and go see them. Because I think we've got a lot of good bands out there. Um, the, the Orbit and Bromfontein. I went recently, it was awesome. Who's next? Kenny? Yeah, all good. Like, <clears throat> I think I just have two. Uh, I've been like Kubernetes, <laughs> just straight off the bat. Um, for any kind of Docker orchestration stuff, I haven't really spent a lot of time playing with, with it myself. I know we practically rebuilt a chunk of it in Bash before it even launched, so I've got to rebuild some plumbing. But I've just been amazed lately at seeing how it's underpinning a lot of fantastic like Docker orchestration services. So that's definitely one to just go fiddle with. It's some good videos and stuff to blow your mind. Uh, that one, and then, I mean, <clears throat> I'm sure a lot of people that know me know I like exploring craft beer. Uh, I found a fantastic vice beer from Stellenbosch. Uh, Stellen Brau Brewery, the Jonkers vice beer. It's probably one of the best beers I've ever had in my life. Yeah, that's me. Cool. Cool. From my and then I've got a book pick. Um, it's probably regarded as a classic and something that I've left way too late to actually read is Kent Beck's Extreme Programming Explained. Ah, very good uh, book. Good book. Yeah. I read that probably a couple of months ago now, but it really just got me inspired again to think in terms, well, more than just in terms of the code that I'm writing, but also the broader context of who I'm working with. And, That's the white uh, book, right? Actually, yes. Yeah, yeah. It's very good. Well, in my case, it was on Kindle, but I've seen the cover <laughs> at least. Yeah. <laughs> Martin, got any picks for us this week? Um, I've also recently reread the, the Extreme Programming book, and it's it's fascinating to see how one chapter out of that book has ended up becoming a whole field of study on its own, like story mapping, for example. Um, but yeah, my pick, um, I've reread uh, um, uh, the Martin Fowler refactoring book um, the last couple of weeks, and what was quite cool is I, I did the Gilded Rose Carter with the book in hand, and, and sort of like forced myself to look up the refactorings in the book and, and actually read step by step how to do the refactorings whenever I did it. And it was actually very enlightening. It was it was quite a fun exercise. So that's worthwhile. So the other pick probably the Gilded Rose Carter. Um, and if you want to learn Swift and you have a Mac, install Xcode and get yourself the the Swift programming language guide. And it's got like an interactive um, book. So the book itself executes, which is amazing. Um, so you can actually sit and edit code in the book and run it. Um, it's just such a fun way of learning a programming language. So you have a look at that. It's cool. Awesome. Cool. Well, I guess that pretty much wraps us up for 
this weekend. Well, thanks for being here, Martin. Thanks, guys. It was awesome. I, I hope hmm. you yeah, Thanks a lot. We're, we're, yeah, great conversation. You do know we're having you back to argue about testing, right? Yes, and about this whole engineering thing as well. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're booking you for a few. The gauntlet has been thrown. <laughs> All <laughs> of the fire extinguishers. Uh, <laughs> cool, man. Thanks, Martin. Thanks cool. for your time. Yeah, thanks, Martin. Thanks, Cheers, guys. guys.